like to invite your attention once again to the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and specifically this morning, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, which will be our uh, subject of study for the next couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Father, we thank you that you have done such a majestic work within the believer that we can walk in wisdom. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that you have certain expectations of us, and they are not unrealistic expectations. They are expectations placed upon us for our good. I pray that you would help us to understand that and to see that. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be actively at work here this morning. Nothing of eternal value will happen apart from your spirit here this morning. Uh, your word may be preached, but without the power of the spirit, it will be dead and lifeless. Father, our minds and our hearts will not be able to receive the truth. We will not be able to begin to apply the truth apart from the working of your spirit. So we pray humbly, yet expectantly, for your spirit to be at work in our midst today. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, staying with the idea of comparing the Christian's identity to the facets of a diamond, uh, we're going to see here once again that Paul turns the diamond to reveal another side, if you will, another facet of this beautiful diamond that is your identity in Christ. I'm afraid as Christians, we don't understand just how marvelous our salvation is. And what a, keeping in mind this picture of a diamond that has all these beautiful facets cut into it that goes into making it this precious jewel. I'm afraid many Christians only see one side of the diamond, if you will, and that is their forgiveness and the fact that they're going to heaven. And that's what salvation is to them, and that's all that it is to them. And that is wonderful, and we're grateful for that. But your salvation is so much more than that. And that's what Paul was repeatedly trying to get us to see, particularly here in his letter to the Ephesians. He has shown us already that the Christian is to be an imitator of God. Why? Because we are his beloved children. And what is God or who is God? God is holy. And because we are in Christ, because we are children of light, we are able to do what? We are able to live out that holiness. Then Paul goes on to say that in addition to being God's beloved children and that, that we should walk in holiness, he also tells us that we are light in the Lord and therefore we should walk as children of light. Now Paul is going to show us as believers and it, that in addition to walking in holiness 
and walking as children of light, that we are to walk in wisdom. We are to walk in wisdom. Literally what he says, what, what we're going to see is that we are wise. Therefore, because we are wise, we should walk with wisdom. We should live with wisdom. So let's read verse 15 together again. That's what we'll examine in detail this morning. Look carefully then how you walk. And he starts with the negative, not as unwise, but as wise. Now there's a key word in verse 15 that we're going to deal with first, and it's the word then. It may seem like an insignificant word, but I don't believe that it is. The word then speaks of something that has happened in the past, and we are continually experiencing the results of it or the impact of it today. So the good Bible student will ask themselves, well, what is then referring to? We need to answer that question. What is he referring to? He says, look carefully then. What does that mean? What's he referring to? Well, there are at least two options available to us in answering that question. The first option is that Paul's referring back to what he has just finished saying in verse 14. And if he is referring to verse 14, his then refers to the shared experience of all believers who have had the light of Christ shone on them and awakened them out of their state of spiritual death. By the way, verse 14 is an evangelistic call. But it's also a reality for all of those who are in Christ. The light of Christ has shone on us and has awakened us out of our spiritual death. So that's an option. Remember John said, of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. And therefore, because they are no longer spiritually dead, because they have been made alive, they have been given a new nature, they must look carefully as to how they conduct themselves. So that's one option. The second option would be that Paul's referring back to the entire paragraph that includes verses 8 through 14 where Paul teaches believers that just because they're light in the Lord, they must walk as children of light. So we have these two options. Does either one of the options seem like a bad option? Not really. Say, so, well, which option is the right one? They both are. They both are. There's no damage done if we say that it refers back to verse 14. And equally, there's no damage done if we say it refers back to the entire paragraph. Why? Because the results are the same. We should look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, all right? All Christians are to walk wisely because they have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. They have been adopted into God's family, and they are now his beloved children. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians, but Paul likes to use the word walk. We first come upon it in Ephesians chapter 2, where he describes our life before we were in Christ, before we were God's beloved children, before uh, we were walking in the light. He describes us as walking in the trespasses and sins. We could say that that was the walk of death, that we walked in darkness. So we see that first in Ephesians there, chapter 2. 
But then he goes on to say, but now that you are in Christ, now that you have been raised to spiritual life, you can now walk in a completely different way. In fact, you are to walk in good works, and you were created to walk in these good works. One of the ways that we know that we are walking in the light is through our good works. One of the ways that others know that we are walking in the light is through our good works. So you see that good works do not save us, but they, are, they come about, they are the result of our salvation. It is ha- These good works that we were created to walk in is how you and I as believers, how we let our light shine. Then if we go to to, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that we are to walk in a uh, uh, manner worthy of our calling. And he highlights two particular characteristics of that worthy walk. And they were unity. And I just forgot the the second one. Was it humility maybe? You check it out when you get home. Sorry about that. But here's here's what really dawned on me this week. As I've been studying this passage in particular... I realize the vastness of God's instruction that he has provided to us in the scriptures to help you and I to live the life that we were created to live before the rebellion of Adam and Eve messed everything up. The Bible teaches us that God created us, and in order for us to live the life we were created to live, We must have our broken relationship with him restored. And there's only one way that that relationship can be restored, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have ample instruction about this. For instance, the Bible teaches us how to get along with our parents. The Bible teaches us how to get along with our kids as well. Amen? The Bible teaches us how to get along with our families. The Bible teaches us how to choose a spouse. You're not left into the dark, in the dark as to how to choose a spouse. That's not a shot in the dark. You're not throwing a dart board against the, against the, uh, a dart against the dart board and hoping you hit the right section. No. The Bible teaches us how to set priorities. The Bible teaches us how to use our time. The Bible teaches us how to raise our children. The Bible teaches us how to love our neighbor. The Bible teaches us uh, to look out for those in society that are the most vulnerable. The Bible not only teaches us how to live well, the Bible also teaches us how to die well. From birth to the grave, God has covered it all. God has provided sufficient, clear, helpful instruction to help us navigate life in a fallen world. So really, we don't have any excuse, do we? We just have to avail ourselves of the truth. And considering all of God's instruction, I marvel at the difficulty we as Christians have living with godly wisdom. Have you ever thought about that? Even as Christians, we make some terrible blunders. And in many cases, that's unnecessary if we would heed God's word. You know, part of the original sin of Adam and Eve was this fact that They didn't like being told what to do. Right? And guess what? They passed that trade on to each and every one of us. Who really likes to be told what to do? You come out of the womb, rebellion, rebellious. 
Mommy may want me to eat now, but I'll eat when I want to eat. Right? You may want me to sleep through the night, but I want to sleep all day. Right? And you're not going to tell me what to do. By the way, it, it, it continues all throughout our life. We just don't want people telling us what to do. And so we continually ignore the clear instruction that God has provided for us in his word with the result of having to deal with the consequences of our disobedience, of ignoring his clear instruction. We have this really large ego problem that we think that we know better than our creator knows. And what happens? We go our own way. And we mess everything up. We don't know better than God, and that's a big part of our problem. So back to verse 15. In verse 15, Paul draws a contrast between two groups of people. And these two groups of people represent all of mankind. You're either in one group or in the other. You cannot be in both groups at the same time. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Now, here's the contrast. Not as unwise. That's one group of people. But as wise, that's the second group of people. And again, you can't be in both groups at the same time. And all people fit into these two groups. They are, other, they are either unwise or they are wise. The question is, how do we become a part of these groups? And if you're in the wrong group, how do you get out of that group and into the right group? Well, the first group is the unwise. The Bible also refers to them as foolish people. And guess what? It's not a very exclusive club. Anybody can get in. In fact, everybody's born into this club. We're all born into this group. Every person born immediately joins this club. And the unwise man or woman is the unsaved man or woman. They are, to use Paul's terminology here in Ephesians, they are Gentiles according to the flesh. The unwise are those that Paul described back in verse 8 as being what? Darkness. Darkness. But there's a second group, and they are the wise. And the only way to become a part of this group is through repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. To become a part of this group, you must enter through the narrow door. And the only way to be numbered among the wise is to humble yourself before your creator, acknowledge your sin, and acknowledge your utter helplessness and your dire need of grace. So that means that all who are in Christ are what? Wise. Wise. Those who have born again are wise. Those who were in darkness but now are light in the Lord, they are wise. I want to be clear as to how Paul uses these words. When you and I think in terms of a foolish person or an unwise person, we probably think in terms of, well, perhaps they're not just that intelligent or we see them as just being irresponsible people who commit irresponsible acts. We think, well, that, that's, that was foolish. In a sense, that's true, but that's not how the Bible uses these two terms. The Bible categorizes all those who either openly declare with their mouths that there is no God, 
or who openly declare by their lies, through their conduct, that their actions are saying that they don't believe there is a God, or if there is a God, they are not responsible to him, and that he has no claim on their lives. Either way, the result is the same. They are in the same group. They are the unwise. What does Psalm 14.1 say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so all people are born in this state. Everyone comes into the world separated from God. They are literally born with an anti-God bias. Doesn't matter how good and moral they may be. They may be born into the best family uh, on the face of the earth, but they still come into this world in a spirit, a state of rebellion, and they have a bias against God. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 1 where he writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. What's he say? They became fools. So that's the characteristic of the first group of people. They are unwise. The Bible calls them foolish, not because they are stupid people, but because they can't understand spiritual truth. But thankfully, that's not the condition for the believer. The believer no longer exists in that group. You, as a believer, are no longer numbered among the unwise. I'm going to say this again. I'm going to prove it to you here in a second. You are wise. You may not have the wisdom of Solomon, but you've got a better wisdom. You are wise. You may, now, let me be clear, you may still do unwise things. You may still do foolish things. You may at times act unwisely, but fundamentally, you are wise. You say, well, how can this be true? How is this true? Is this really true? It sounds too good to be true. But according to the Bible, it is true. It is true of every believer because at salvation, every believer was made wise in Christ. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth? You may want to make yourself a note. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Have you ever taken the time to think about that? We hear so much, so frequently, so often, and rightly so, that we have received the righteousness of Christ, and that is tremendously good news, isn't it? And we need to hear that frequently, and we're glad to hear that frequently, but how often do you hear that at the same time that you received the righteousness of Christ, you received the wisdom of Christ? So why is this important? Because there is no way that you can obey verse 15 apart from receiving the wisdom of Christ. Again, Paul is not saying, listen, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, go get you some philosophy books, be, learn as much wisdom as you can, and go live it out. No, 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 no. He said you can live with wisdom because you have what? Received wisdom. A wisdom better than Solomon's. You have received the wisdom of 
Christ. And when you hear that, it makes me wonder, then why do I do such foolish things at times? And as we mature in Christ, as we grow in Christ, we grow in wisdom. Wisdom, please, please, please mark this down. Wisdom is not acquired through age. Experience is gained by age, but not necessarily wisdom. And the wisdom that has been given to us must be developed. And you may be sitting there thinking, a lot of you look at me like, is this guy, was he, in, was he uh, drank some bad cough syrup this week? Where, where is he getting this from? Listen, Paul's not saying that you, when you received Christ, that you were 100% wise, if I can put it that way. Wisdom Number one, has to be acknowledged that you possess it, correct? If you don't acknowledge that you have it, you'll never use it. Now, once that you acknowledge that you have it, you need to what? Use it. You need to put it to use. I hate to use the old analogy of like a muscle. If you don't use a muscle, it what? It deteriorates. You reach a point in time like me, you're not even sure you got muscle anymore. It's, you know, it seems less than that, Amen. Well, it's the same way with our wisdom. We have to acknowledge that we have it. And number two, we have to put this to use. We have to exercise it. I know there are times when we as Christians, we say, you know, I just don't know. And there are times when that's true. We just don't know. But that shouldn't be our automatic response to everything in life. I just don't know. Why? Because you have received wisdom. You've received wisdom. So as we mature in Christ, as we grow in Christ, we grow in wisdom. And the wisdom that has been given to us must be developed. Paul wrote to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly patience. Notice that, training us and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And as we live with self-control, as we live upright in godly lives, guess what we are demonstrating? Guess what we are doing? We're walking in wisdom. We're walking in wisdom. And our Heavenly Father wants us to take full advantage of the wisdom that He has given to us. That's why James teaches us, if any of you lacks wisdom, now let me, let me include this parenthetical thought here. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, I take that to mean, at this particular point, he's referring to the ability to apply wisdom because we already have wisdom, correct? So if any of you lack the knowledge or the understanding as to how to apply wisdom, well, what should we do? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Okay. MacArthur writes, the believer begins the new life in Christ with all the wisdom necessary to live for his Lord, but they are to continually grow in wisdom that they can be more mature, more faithful, and more productive in his service. 
this is so, say, why are you going to spend one week just on the fact that we are wise in Christ? Because you will not be able to fulfill the command in verse 16 to make the best use of the time unless you understand that you are wise. Because you will be mistaken as to how to make the best use of that time. And you may, you may be very productive in your life, but you may totally miss the best use of that time. So in order to grow in wisdom, we must use wisdom. You have to exercise the wisdom God provides in the Scriptures. So how is God going to get you to exercise the wisdom? Well, he's going to place you in circumstances and situations that you're going to need what? Wisdom. Wisdom. And sadly... And tragically, many Christians just throw up their hands and say, I don't know, I can't figure it out, too tough for me. You know what? They get stunted. They can't move forward. Why? God's got a lesson to teach. He wants them to exercise wisdom. So that begs the question, well, what is wisdom according to the Bible? What is wisdom according to the Bible? Well, wisdom, first of all, let me look at it from a negative point of view, it is more, or wisdom is not mere intellectual or intelligence, intellectual capability or intelligence. There are a lot of very smart people in this world, right? But they do a lot of unwise things. Why? Because they don't have the wisdom that comes from Christ. I mean, you look at the lives, you look at the the. One of the richest men in the world, the, the guy that owns Amazon, Jeff, what's his name, Bezos? You've been reading about him. He's got himself in a little bit of soup. You think he's an intelligent man? I dare say he is. But he doesn't have biblical wisdom. Wisdom is more than genius, and wisdom is more than common sense. Now, I know common sense is on the endangered species list today, but wisdom is more than common sense. Wisdom is the ability to use your knowledge, your intelligence, your common sense, and you bring them all together as needed in order to live biblically. Wisdom is, as I said, much more than knowledge. Wisdom is the proper use the proper application of the knowledge that you do have. Wisdom is harnessing our knowledge and applying that knowledge in practical and helpful ways of living. Wise people are those who take the time to think. Wise people are those who try and discern what the will of the Lord is. Wise people are those who try and understand what the will of the Lord is, and they endeavor to live it out day by day. Wisdom is applying God's truth to every area of our lives. God's wisdom must govern the smallest piece or area of our lives. And that's why Paul says you must not walk or live as the unwise do for the simple reason you are wise. And I know this may take a little while for us to digest, but this is what the Bible teaches. 
And as we've seen all throughout the book, Paul keeps introducing these new realities that represent our identity in Christ. And here's one of them. You are wise. You are wise. Christ is our wisdom. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you are what? Wise. Christ is wisdom. You are in Christ, therefore you are wise. See, when you were placed in Christ, if I, I, hope this, I hope this makes sense. When you were placed in Christ, you got all of Christ. You didn't just get his righteousness. As wonderful as that is, you received his wisdom, his sanctification, his redemption. You got the whole package. See? Christ is our wisdom. We are in Christ, therefore we are wise. So wisdom is knowledge applied in an appropriate manner. Now, this is all well and good, but let, is there an illustration of this in the Scriptures that will help us perhaps pull all, all of this together? Of course there is, or I wouldn't have brought it up. Amen? And in particular, I want to use an illustration from the life of Paul. Before I get to the illustration... I want to remind you of a verse, Proverbs 11.30, this is the ESV version, says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Now, if you're like me and you grew up on the King James, you'll be more familiar with it. It says, and he that, what, winneth souls is wise. So let me show you how Paul put this truth into practice as he presented the gospel. First, let's get an understanding of this word captured. The word captured comes from a Hebrew word which, depending upon how it's used, can mean to take and carry along. You may want to get the image in your mind of, uh, for instance, uh, I take one of my grandchildren's hands and I'm, I'm going to guide them across the street. I'm going to take their hand and carry them along. Okay, I'm going to guide them to a particular destination. Now, I have to confess to you I've always misunderstood this verse. I realized this week I completely misunderstood Proverbs 11.30. I thought that this verse meant that you acquired or gained wisdom as you won souls, as you evangelized unbelievers. Did anybody else ever think of that verse in that way? I, I'm not afraid to admit it. I did. But wisdom is not gained or acquired through your soul-winning efforts. What have we already learned? Wisdom comes through Christ. In fact, I believe this verse means just the opposite. That you should use wisdom in your soul-winning you should use wisdom in your opportunities to witness and present the gospel. Here's what I mean. It means that you do your best to understand where a person is at spiritually, and that is where you start with them. It means that you understand that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to presenting the gospel. This dawned on me when John and Joey and I were 
doing some discipleship here a couple weeks, and we were going through Will Metzger's Tell the Truth, point one, and John just pointed out how that he had been going through uh, an account of Acts, and just something he said just kind of thought, oh, that, that makes perfect sense, so thank you, John. I won't do like Ben. I rip Ben stuff off and never give him credit. I'll give you credit. <laughs> and, and how many times have we approached everybody the same way in wanting to present the gospel to them? Whether it be the four spiritual laws or the wordless book or whatever it may be. The Romans road. So keep that in mind. Now back to Paul. In Acts chapter 26, really starts in Acts 25, Paul is before Felix, and he's making his case that, uh, hey, uh, I shouldn't be judged here. I should be sent to Rome to be judged. Well, Felix, like any good politician, didn't want to make a decision. He wanted to pass the buck. And he said, well, you know, uh, uh, Agrippa, King Agrippa, and his wife Bernice, How's that for a name for you? His wife, Bernice, uh, they're coming to town, and I think what I'd like to do, I'd like to have you make your case before them, Paul. Okay? So that takes place in Acts chapter 26. So I would encourage you to take some time to go home and read Acts 26 and really think through what Paul's doing here. And all I want to do this morning is I'm not going to read Acts 26. I'm going to give you a few highlights from Paul's encounter with King Agrippa. First of all, Paul presents the truth to them. Whenever we are witnessing to someone, we want to make sure, whenever we're presenting the gospel to someone, we want to make sure that we're giving them the truth, biblical truth. He doesn't shade the truth. But here's what Paul does. He presents the truth in such a way that it furthers the conversation or keeps the conversation going instead of shutting down the conversation. Now, how many times have you and I wanted to share the gospel with someone, and maybe we've worked up our courage and we've done it, and we, the first words out of our mouth cause them to totally clam up? Conversation's over. Well, Paul didn't do that. He approached it in such a way that he opened up the conversation. Second, he asked a question that drew King Agrippa into the conversation. Now, I want you to take note of this. As we present the gospel, the gospel is a conversation. When we present the gospel, it is a conversation. But how many times do we present it as a monologue? We act like we're a late-night host, and they're our audience, and we're just going to give them our shtick. No. The gospel is not a monologue. It is dialogue. It is opening up two-way communication, and that's what Paul does. Okay, he shows his wisdom. Third, he says whatever favorable things he can to the king. He's not flattering the king, nor is he trying to manipulate the king. But what he's doing is he's acknowledging that the king is important, both in his person and his position. In other words, he acknowledges the worth of that person. And I think as Christians, sometimes we struggle with that. If they're just not like us, walk like us, talk like us, quack like us, we don't see much value in them. But Paul doesn't make that mistake. Number four, Paul does not attack the man or his lifestyle. 
In other words, he doesn't condemn the man right off the bat. Finally, Paul meets this man where he was at. Paul says to him, hey, Agrippa, I'm so glad that I get to make my defense to you because I know, King Agrippa, that you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. He actually uses that term, controversies of the Jews. I, I, know, I, I know that you're, you're, you're going to be able to understand here. What's he doing? He's meeting the man where he's at. He doesn't assume too much, nor does he assume too little. He understands something about King Agrippa, and that's where he starts. So as we contemplate Paul's approach, I hope that you see how he used biblical wisdom in dealing with the king. Listen, biblical wisdom is not given to you so that you can solve the mysteries of the universe. Biblical wisdom is given to you so that you can successfully navigate life and show others how to do the same. Biblical wisdom is not given to you so that you can come off as some quasi-philosopher. I know there's very few people in the room that will identify with this, so perhaps I shouldn't use it, but Ben says I use date illustrations all the time, so here we go. If you're familiar with the Andy Griffith Show, you remember there's a character on there named Goober. Goober owned the, the, the uh, uh, filling station, and he, it, it, his name probably gives him away. He wasn't the brightest bulb in the chandelier. But uh, they had some kind of class there in Mulberry one time, and, and uh, uh, Goober got some question right. Well, next week he shows up, and he's grown him a beard and a mustache. And he thinks that he's the wisest thing on the face of the earth. That's not the kind of wisdom that the Bible's talking about here practical application of biblical truth. So what was Paul trying to do in his presentation of the gospel to King Agrippa? I'll tell you what he wasn't trying to do. He wasn't trying to win an argument and score points for God's team. See, I'm afraid many times when we go to present the gospel, we automatically assume an adversarial position, like they are the enemy. They are not the enemy. You at one time were in their shoes, and there but for the grace of God, you would still be in their shoes. Okay? Paul is trying to win him over. Paul is trying to persuade him of the truth. He's, back to our Hebrew word, he's taking him and doing his best to carry him along to Christ, to capture him for Christ. To win him for Christ. He's using his knowledge, his common sense. He's walking in wisdom. And then we get down to verse 24. And keep in mind that at this, during this whole conversation, Festus is in the room, but Paul's been talking to King Agrippa. Then in verse 34, we read this. And as he was saying these things in his defense, that's Paul, Festus, Again, Paul's talking to Agrippa, but Festus has been hearing this. Said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving, is, is driving you out of your mind. Now, notice how Paul responds. 
Oh, we would have got our, the hair on the back of our neck would have stood up and we would have bowed our back and said, who do you think you are accusing me of being Nazi Fago? No. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Who's the king's notice? For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Bingo. What do you think Paul's reply would be? Yes. Yes. I want to persuade you to be a Christian. So what has Paul done? He has demonstrated wisdom by bringing his knowledge, his intelligence, and his common sense together to tailor a presentation of the gospel to meet King Agrippa at the appropriate starting place. He used biblical wisdom. So how are you and I to use this wisdom? Well, I trust at this point that you have a firm grip on the truth that when you became a Christian, at the same time you received the righteousness of Christ, you also received the wisdom of Christ. Now, don't go out of here all puffed up. But you should live up to and live out who you are in Christ. You are children of light, therefore walk, live with wisdom. Use the wisdom that is Christ to help you live moment by moment and day by day in a way that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And if you don't know in the moment what is pleasing to the Lord Jesus, what should you do? Ask. Ask. Now, I didn't spend much time on the first part of the verse because I think if you get the second part of the verse, the first part falls into place. But to walk carefully is to be prudent. To pay careful attention to the way that you live. To pay careful attention to the decisions that you make. It means that you live in a very deliberate manner. It means that you live in a strict, disciplined manner. And again, this is God not trying to rob you of joy. This is God trying to fuel your joy. Okay. To walk in wisdom stands in stark contrast, in stark relief to the way that many people live their lives. There's a show on one of the cable channels that's usually on Saturday afternoon, and it's, it's called The Day the Rockstar Died. It's not hard to figure out what the show's about. The day that those who had achieved what they thought was a pinnacle of success usually end up taking their own lives. They weren't careful as to how they lived. Too many people live for the moment. And by the way, that's what our culture is all about, isn't it? Live for the moment. 
It's what the advertiser wants to, to get you to do, to live for the moment. Many people are undisciplined in their thinking. They're undisciplined in their actions. They're undisciplined in how they spend their lives. And a life carefully lived stands out against the lifestyle of the unwise, which is governed by their feelings, governed by their desires, and governed by their zeal, which many times is misdirected and misguided. And we see the results of this all around us, don't we? The lifestyle of the unwise is not given to much thought. They rarely think ahead and they fail to consider the consequences. We see it in their choices. We see it in their actions. We see it in their decisions. But you and I as Christians, as children of light, we are to walk with wisdom. And the good news is we can because it's not a wisdom of our own. It's the wisdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for really what is a life-changing truth. If, if we, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to grasp this and understand this. And Father, we'll know if we leave here today and things begin to change for us as, as we begin to make changes that reflect our understanding that we have the wisdom of Christ and that we are to walk in wisdom. We are not to live by our feelings. We are not to live by our desires. We are to live by the truth of Scripture. And in those moments when we feel torn, when we're not sure what to do, all we have to do is to flee to Christ, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, And Father, Father, we are filled, we are surrounded by people who the Bible would classify as unwise. And Father, if there is those here today who fit in that category, I pray that through your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would bring them to Christ. Father, do what only you can do. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.